Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home this evening. Last week we were discussing some material and we appreciate your interaction last week. We look forward to your interaction tonight. Tonight we are picking up on a new topic, one that we have not discussed in depth here on That's Truth. And it there was a question that came in at the end of last week's episode, Pastor, about dietary restrictions. I know this is a topic that even within the realm of Christendom, There's a lot of uh, different opinions, a lot of different views, but ultimately on this program, our basis is the Bible. Does the Bible cover this topic, Pastor? Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of reference to the matter of what you can eat and what you can't eat. So the Bible does definitely cover this particular subject. What are the dietary laws mentioned in the Old Testament? Well, um, if you check the Old Testament, which I will we'll check just soon from now, um, you'll discover that there were certain regulatory uh, framework that was given in respect to what the Jews could eat and not could not eat because they were under the Old Testament covenant of law, and that law laid certain restrictions on them. The reason given why uh, they were given these laws that governed what they could eat basically had to do uh, the idea that God was holy and they were supposed to be holy. And the word holy means to be separate. So there would be a, a distinct, special people that um, would be completely uh, separated from every other heathen uh uh, nation, and to do that, uh, God ensured that every aspect of the life, whether it was the clothing, the eating, the agriculture, uh, that it was distinct from the different uh, pagan countries around them, and that's where these laws came in to make them very, very distinctive. So they're really laws that govern their relationship with God, and uh, and it was an indication that they were chosen by him and separate and distinct from all the other pagan nations. Was it tied to favor in God's eyes? Was it tied to salvation? Well, uh, the Bible tells us that God chose Israel not because they were the most people of any nation, but that he loved them. And uh, he had to have a means of reaching the other nations of the world with the glad tidings of the gospel. So Israel was a chosen vessel that would become 
is centripetal force that would draw other nations to God, to the true and the living God. So there were means to an end and not an end in themselves. And but they had to be distinctive if they were going to appeal and attract other nations. They had to be very distinct. And God is the one that set up those guidelines that would make them distinct, including that and uh, even today, uh, you hear about kosher food, right. which is uh, if you go to the supermarket, you can get kosher food. It's pretty expensive, though, in comparison to how the others do it, because normally it's, um, it would not involve certain types of meats. And also how the meat is prepared, uh, that is a distinctive thing. Even today, uh, people distinguish the Jews that way. But that was an identifying mark, the fact of how they would dress, how they would eat, how they would worship. Uh, how they would even do the agriculture. You can mix certain seeds with certain seeds, etc., etc. It was all designed to make them a very distinct nation, uh, one that s- served the true and the living God. And this is ways that God put in place that every aspect of their life was supposed to be uh, distinguished. Now, we as Christians in 2022 are supposed to be distinct, correct? Yeah. So I'm but, just gonna uh, go ahead. I'm gonna get right to the point here, and I'm sure you'll back up and discuss it in much more detail throughout the program tonight. Doesn't that mean then that I should follow these laws? Well, uh, well, it, we have to let the Bible speak for itself. Okay, and we are going to show you that both in the Book of Colossians and the Book of Romans, and also in the Book of Mark, that these laws have been abrogated when it comes to how we eat. Uh, we will show you that. But the thing about our distinguishing mark today is not what we eat. It's how we live. With the Jew, it was more... You remember the Jews think in terms of pictures. Even the language, by the way, is, is picture language. The words is almost like um, Chinese, that you have a picture of a language. The Jews spoke in terms of, of pictures. Um, but basically today, when it comes to how we distinguish ourselves and how we prove that we are children, God's children, it has to do with how we live our lifestyle. And the Bible does lay down a basic fundamental principle on uh, things like how we dress, uh, modesty. But there's nothing in the New Testament that stipulates how what the believer should eat. Uh, and we will show you later in, in those uh, three books that these laws no longer applicable. If a person voluntarily would like want to live that lifestyle, that's their conscience. But for that person to impose it on you or to make you think you're doing something morally wrong or evil, uh, this is where uh, we draw the line and let the person know that there's such a thing as Christian liberty. And it's very, very clear from what Paul says in Colossians or what he says in Romans and also what he says in Timothy that these laws no longer apply to the believer in terms of a strict way of eating. Uh, those things don't apply. If you've just tuned into That's Truth, welcome. We are glad that you are taking time out of your Tuesday evening to join us here. It is a live, interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268 268- No one is on the phone, so the line is open and awaiting your call. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Now, maybe you have a question, but it doesn't pertain to what we've already started talking about, the dietary laws laid out in Scripture. Not a problem. No matter what your question is, feel free to send it in. Until we receive your question or receive your phone call, we will continue to discuss this topic as taught in the Bible. Again, we're talking about the dietary laws in Scripture. 
Anything else you want to mention in introduction before jumping into where they're found in the Old Testament and what they are? No, I think today, uh, certainly, the SDA, Seventh Adventists, I mean, they push these laws and these regulations, and uh, to them it's almost like a, a moral fence if you don't uh, follow the laws in the Old Testament, and especially if you are prone to like the pig. Uh, I think they think that you're doing something absolutely wrong by, by eating those kind of, of, of products. And, and, and that they also push a, a, a healthy lifestyle uh, as part of their whole gamut of uh, religious teachings. So the, the, the Seventh-day has always had a, a, a particular aspect of health, health. That's why they have hospitals and they have dentists, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, a very healthy component to their religion. But again, um, when you come to the New Testament, uh, as we will show you, there's no basis for pushing this kind of agenda and making people feel as though they're somehow evil or wrong or uh, morally um, miscreants or whatever. Um, the Bible itself gives us a leeway and freedom to, to what we what we can eat, and um, so it, it, the Bible speaks to this matter. What are the dietary laws in the Old Testament? Well, the the there are two main passages in the Scripture that deal with the dietary laws. There are others, but uh, intermittent between. But the two main sections that deal with dietary laws is Leviticus chapter. Um, 11 and, and Deuteronomy chapter 4, 14. Uh, however, uh, you'll find that when it comes to these dietary laws that there are general principles that are stated and then you're given some specifics. So there's generality and there's also specificity that's mentioned when it comes to these kind of laws. For example, Nathan, if you look at uh, Leviticus three, seventeen, you have a general principle there in regards to what you could eat. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that ye eat neither fat nor blood. That's a general principle. That's one of the general principles of what you could eat. So even though the animals that the Bible permits you to eat, you could not eat the fat and you could not eat the blood. Uh, so, so that's a general principle. So, And then another general principle uh, like that is also found in uh, Leviticus 7, look at 22 and verse 26. A kind of a repeat, basically. Leviticus 7.22 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Read all the way through 26? No, just read verse 22 and 26. Moreover, ye shall eat no manner of blood, whether it be of fowl or of beast, in any of your dwellings. Right, and you did 26 as well? Yeah, that was 26. You read 22? Uh, 22, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Okay, um, so you've got the, the, the teaching there about no fat, no blood. It's repeated in, in Leviticus 7 and verse 26. Another general principle is in Leviticus 11.3. And that says, Whatsoever parteth the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beast, that shall ye eat. So that's a, uh, another general principle, that if an animal... Um, chew the cud, and it had cloven, and it, uh, and it could chew the cud. It also had split hoofs. You could eat those those kind of animals. Uh, again, that's a general principle. An animal that uh, had the, the hoof that was split, but didn't chew the cud, you could eat it. Okay. Animal that could chew the cud but didn't have it split, you could eat it. So these are two general principles: no blood, no fat. And if you're going to use 
animals, it must have a split hoof and it must be able to chew the cud. These are ge- broad general principles in connection with the, uh, the eating of foods. Now that brings us to a uh, more specific look at verse number, look at Leviticus chapter 11 and look at verse number 4 to 8. Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the hoof. As the camel, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the coney, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the hare, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the swine, though he divided the hoof, and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall ye not eat, and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. So you, you couldn't eat camel, you couldn't eat uh, a coney, or what is called a rock badger, you couldn't eat uh, rabbits here, no, you couldn't eat pig. No, you can't even touch them. So I am wondering today if you take those particular principles, uh, it would mean that even though you don't eat the pig today, you touch the pig, or even though you don't eat a rabbit, but you touch a rabbit, uh, according to the Old Testament law, you're unclean. But notice that these animals, some of them chew the cud, but the hoofs are not um, split. Some of them's hoofs are split, but they don't chew the cud, and they don't fit into that uh, regulation that God has given, that you must be able to uh, chew the cud, and have the hoof split as well. So again, notice you're getting out a more specificity as to what how this principle applied. If you move down to verse 9 to 12, it talks now about fish, what you could... Um, 9 to 12 says... you got another general principle there. Go ahead. These shall ye eat of all that are in the waters, whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters, in the seas, and in the rivers. Them shall ye eat. And all that have not fins and scales in the sea and in the river, all of them that move in the waters and of any living things which is in the water, that ye should, they shall be an abomination unto you. They shall be even an abomination unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, and ye shall not have their carcass in abomination. Okay, that means no shellfish, it means no squid, no mollusks, no lobsters, no turtles, no crabs, no conchs. The only thing you could eat, you were limited to do, it had to have scales and it had to have fins. Uh, these are some of the reg- and these are the kind of regulations that uh, certain groups want to impose today. Uh, that you know you can't eat lobster, you can't eat crab, you can't eat uh, squid, whatever it is, you can't eat uh, octopus, no shark, no shark, nothing at all like that. Only thing you could eat, it must have fins. And it must have scales. These are the regulations that we're talking about, the dietary regulations. We have a Facebook Uh comment that's come in. Pastor, kosher is what the Jewish rabbis over time have decided. It started with God's guidelines, and man made it stricter and stricter. Kosher is not biblical. Well, uh, I'm using the word kosher in the sense that the Jews would not eat any of the things that are restricted. Uh, they would only eat kosher food, food that in the Old Testament was recognized and God would sanction. For example, the Jews would not eat pig. They would not eat a lot of these other things that are talking. That's what I mean by that. But I do agree that the Jews have stretched the, the Old Testament just like they did the Pharisees and the Sadducees and included other uh, 
principles that they themselves added. I'm not disputing that. But generally speaking, kosher food is food that is uh, the Jews accept uh, as proper and right in the Old Testament and would not violate uh, those dietary laws that are stated in the Old Testament. Uh, and then we go to um, birds 13 and 19. And these are they which ye shall have in abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination, the eagle and the ossifrage and the osprey and the vulture and the kite after its kind, every raven after his kind, and the owl and the nighthawk and the cacao and the hawk after his kind and the little owl and the cormanent and the great owl and the swan and the pelican and the gear eagle and the stork and the heron heron, uh, thank you after her kind and the lapwing and the bat again very very specific so when you take if you take all of these basically you're limited to very few types of birds that you can actually eat uh, again, if we're going to impose these today uh, in parts of Africa or different parts of the world, you really have a serious problem, to be very honest with you. Um, but again, we're just looking at what the laws in the Old Testament said as what you can eat and what you, what, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not disputing uh, at this moment in time. And then if you look at verse 20 to 23, it talks about the insects you couldn't eat. All fowls that creep, going upon all four, shall be an abomination unto you. All these may ye eat of every flying, creeping thing that goeth upon all four, which have legs above their feet, but leap wherewithal upon the earth. Even these of them ye may eat, the locust after his kind, and the bald locust after his kind, and the beetle after his kind, and the grasshopper after his kind. But all other flying, creeping things which have four feet shall be an abomination unto you. Again, uh, very limited. You could eat locusts, you could eat the cricket, you could eat grasshopper, uh, anything that had a, a foot that actually had a legs that had joints that you can jump or hop, basically. Um, so those are sure. And then we come to verse 42 to uh, the end of the ch- uh, 29. Uh, it talks about swarming things. Whatsoever goeth upon the belly, crawling, and whatsoever goeth upon all four, or whatsoever hath more feet among all creeping things that creepeth upon the earth, them ye shall not eat, for they are an abomination. Ye shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping things that creepeth, neither shall ye make yourselves unclean with them that ye should be defiled thereby. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. You want me to continue? Yeah. That would include rodents, reptiles, mice, moles, lizards, crocodiles, snakes, slugs, worms. All of these things were virtually forbidden. So when you look at the Old Testament regulatory dietary laws, they're very, very, very strict, very, very, very specific, and they're very, very limited in what you could eat. Um, so there's no, you can't eat bacon, you can't eat ham, you can't eat pork chops, you can't eat sauce, you can't eat pudding, you can't eat ribs, you can't eat crab, you can't eat lobster, you can't eat shrimp. Uh, quite uh, 
a list quite that most people today uh, outside of the SDA would eat some of those things. No question about that. I think most people would tell you they love lobster, they love crabs. I know in Antigua, they love crabs, etc., etc. And uh, most people like some kind of bacon or ham or salsa pudding. Uh, so the question is, are we now to apply all of these um, regulatory laws uh, today? Are they still in place and do we still live by that same dietary standard? That's what we need to establish by looking at the New Testament and that's what we're going to do. However, I would like to draw your attention to also Deuteronomy chapter 3 where these dietary laws are repeated. Uh, the thing about Deuteronomy and how it differs from chapter 11 of Leviticus is that it uh, provides examples of animals that you could eat. The other one tell you what you could eat, but here you're told what you you can eat. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, look at verse number 3, and just read down to maybe verse 20. Uh, Deuteronomy 14. 14, yeah. Verse 3. Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which ye shall eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart and the roebuck, the fallow deer and the wild goat, the pygarg and the wild ox, and the chamois, and every beast departeth the hoof and cleaveth the cleft into the two claws, and cheweth the cud among the beast that ye shall eat. Nevertheless, these ye shall not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the cloven hoof, as the camel and the hare and the coney, and they chew the cud, but divide not the hoof. Therefore, they are unclean unto you. And the swine, because it divideth the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud, it is unclean to you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. These ye shall eat of all that are in the waters. All that have fins and scales ye shall eat. And whatsoever hath not fins and scales, ye may not eat. It is unclean to you. Of all clean birds ye shall eat. But these are they of which ye shall not eat. The eagle, the ostrich, and the osprey, the gleed, and the kite, and the vulture after his kind, and every raven after his kind, and the owl, and the night hawk, and the cacao, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl, and the great owl, and the swan, and the pelican, and the gear eagle, and the cormorant, and the stork, and the heron after her kind, and the lapwing, and the bat, and every creeping thing that flieth is unclean unto you, they are not to be eaten, and every creeping thing that flieth is unclean yeah. to you. I think we can we pretty much are just using Deuteronomy to let you know that, that those things are pretty much repeated. Remember the word Deuteronomy, second law, okay. basically. So it's just a repeat of what you have in Leviticus. The only thing that uh, Deuteronomy does is that it tells you what you can eat. The other verses tell you what you're not to eat, but this one in Deuteronomy tells you what you can eat. That's the only distinction between the two. Um, so it's quite a list, uh, and um, I would say to you that living in the Western world, uh, if you were to prohibit a lot of what was mentioned there, um, people in, in great trouble in terms of what they can eat and uh, what, what would satisfy them. But of course we're talking about what is the biblical position on it, and uh, we hope to establish clearly that the Bible does give the believer today who is no longer under the Old Testament economy of law 
the liberty and the freedom uh, to enjoy that which God has provided. And we hope to show you quite clearly what Paul says in his writings that lead us to this conclusion that liberty should be exercised when it comes to the matter of what we eat today. Now, couldn't you make a similar rationale for uh, saying, but, you know, the Bible's so restrictive in the lifestyle or the things I want to be involved in, and therefore I'm just going to pick and choose? Well, you, you could pick and choose if the Bible gives you that liberty to pick and choose. In the case of the eating, I will show you quite frankly, in both, in, as I said, in Colossians, Timothy, and um, Romans, that Paul makes it quite clear. As a matter of fact, Paul was saying in Romans chapter thing that he's convinced there's nothing unclean. He'll tell you that that's Paul's view on the whole matter. I mean, that is a pretty much a, a very strong statement that uh, you have the liberty and the freedom to eat because in his judgment, nothing is unclean in itself. It's only unclean to the man who thinks it's unclean. That's what Paul would utter as a, as a general principle. But uh, what puts restrictions and um, is what the Bible actually teaches. When it comes to morality, for example, the Bible is very, very strict when it comes to the moral behavior of the believer. Uh, we don't have to pick and choose in those kind of, of matters. The Bible is very specific what, what certain sins are. But um, when it comes to other things, we do have choices, and the Bible is the book that gives us the guidelines where we have choices and where we have liberty and where we have strictures. So ultimately, it's the Bible that guides us in making those kind of decisions. Not the, um, it's not a subjective decision that we make uh, without having some biblical uh, sanction or some biblical principle that guide us in making those decisions. Any further comments you want to make in relation to what the restrictions of these laws were? Well, uh, um, I think you see that the general two, three general principles that, are, that I mentioned, then you have the specifics as far as how those principles worked out. Uh, I would like to, to mention that uh, clearly these dietary laws had nothing to do with the spirit, spirituality. Uh, I mean, sorry, they had nothing to do with uh, health. They were not health issues. Okay. Nowhere in any of these passages is it mentioned that you must do it because of, of health reasons. Um, it, it always has to do with maintaining Israel's special, unique identity as a spiritual people serving a holy God. And as I, I said, everything that Israel did was supposed to demarcate them from every other nation uh, among which they moved. So what it had to do with their dressing, what it had to do with how they would <coughs> plow their fields, what they do with what they eat, every single aspect of their life was supposed to distinguish them. <coughs> and that's where the dietary laws came in. They were mainly for spiritual purposes. Look at uh, Leviticus 20 and 24 and 26. <coughs> Leviticus 20, verse 24 to 26. 20, 24 to 26. It says, But I have said unto you, Ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. Ye shall therefore put difference between clean beast and unclean beast, and between unclean fowls and clean. And ye shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord, 
I am holy and have severed you from the other people that ye shall be mine. It's very, very clear that look at the territory laws and the regulations that he stipulated. It had to do with Israel's spiritual identity as being one nation that distinctly served Jehovah God, who was the true and holy God. There's not a single mention there about any health issue whatsoever. And it's just purely uh, a mark uh, that would distinguish them from the other nations. That's what it was there for. So it, it had a spiritual purpose, but also I think there was some moral education there as well that uh, to curb the desires uh, by limiting uh, what they could eat. Uh, also, um, I think fostering them the, the abhorrence for that which was unclean, that had to be taught uh, morally, but also physical lessons had to be taught. In other words, uh, what was going on with the food and the and the clothing? And it was a it was a uh, a pictorial illustration of what how what was clean. That there is such a thing as clean and unclean. So this was a uh, it's almost like God using pictorial pictures to teach Israel at this infant stage in a spiritual growth. Like we use pictures to teach our kids. They're at that infant stage, and he's using every means possible to reinforce that I am holy, and there's such a thing as uncleanness. And to emphasize that there's such a thing as moral uncleanness, I'm going to let you understand that in every aspect of your life, whether it be what you cook, what you cook, what you, how you dress, how you plow your fields, what you plant. I want you to understand that there's a distinction between that which is holy and that which is unclean and this had to be acted out in the lives of those people to reinforce that truth about uh, um, their that God was holy um, but it, it's very clear to Nathan that the dietary laws were not moral and let me give you one or two reasons for that right look at Genesis 9-3 Genesis chapter 9 and yeah, verse, verse 3, three yeah. says every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you even as the green herb, have I given you all things? Now, this is after the flood. Right. Before the flood, people were vegetarian, basically. But now he's saying after the flood, what? Every, Every, everything that liveth shall be meat for you. I mean, Every moving thing. Yeah, it's very, very clear now that after the flood, man is now given the liberty uh, to eat. Remember that the distinction that somebody mentioned between clean and unclean before the flood had to do with the sacrifice, had nothing to do with eating. Okay. Right, nothing to do with, with that. It was the sacrifice, but now uh, after the flood, you're given this tremendous liberty. And remember that Leviticus comes after Genesis. So it's only after Genesis you got these restrictions as far as what you can eat. But here, after the flood, every living thing that creepeth basically you you can eat after the flood. If it was a moral issue uh, of what what you eat. Uh, clearly, this will be a violation of God's moral standards because he's the one that's enacting this law. He can't be telling me I can eat everything now, and it was a moral issue. You follow what I'm saying? So right. it cannot be a moral issue because it would mean that God has violated his own morality, and that is virtually impossible. The other thing, that, Nathan, that's important, if you look at Deuteronomy 14.21, well, first of all, look at Leviticus 22.8. Leviticus 22.8 says, That which dieth of itself or is torn with beast, he shall not eat to defile himself therewith. I am the Lord. Now that's a restriction given to the Jew. Okay, you can't eat anything that dieth of itself or anything that's torn by an animal. Now look at Deuteronomy 14 verse 21. 
Deuteronomy 14.21, if you're wanting to follow along in your own Bible, says, Ye shall not eat of anything that dieth of itself. Thou shalt give it unto the stranger... Thou shalt give it unto the stranger that is in thy gates, that he may eat it, or thou mayest sell it to an alien. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not seeth a kid in his mother's... Now, if it was a moral issue, it's inconceivable that God would restrict the Jew from doing this and then tell the Jew, no, you can turn around and sell it to, to foreign people and people with need a case. So it cannot be a moral issue, the matter of food, what you could eat in this particular case. It was a matter of God trying to get Israel to understand, I am holy. Mm-hmm. You must remain distinct from me, uh, and distinct from, from the nations. And this was carried out in every aspect of their life, as I said, including these dietary laws. But if you're saying that what you eat was was a moral issue, you have God himself violating those moral issues, which puts God in a very precarious position. And that's why when people try to push that if you don't eat, uh, if you eat certain things, you're, 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 you're sinning or you're committing a moral offense, um, that clearly is not the case. Um, it's not a moral issue. Uh, in the, in these matters. Pastor, we have a caller on the air. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Uh, good night to you all. Good night. How are you doing? Um, I want to ask a question concerning, like, if God knows every king, why did he say he saw he make man? I think he had a plan, and if he have everything as a plan, you know, he's going to know that man is going to sin. Why he say he's sorry? Yeah. Well, you know, when when those expressions are used, uh, those are what you call anthropomorphisms, which is uh, uh, feelings and emotions of man applied to God. Uh, so it's 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 actually a an expression that um, how do you how uh, how do you um, define God? How do you explain God's feelings, etc.? So you use human terms uh, to describe God because it's not, there's not a way to describe God other than use human terms. But when it says that God uh, repented that He'd made man, um, I think that's a legitimate expression that He remember He made man with a moral choice. He must be aware what decision man would have made, but it was made, it, it was worth the risk of giving man, uh, creating man in his own image and giving man the, the right to choose. Um, but repent means that the, each, you know, um, is a change of mind uh, in relation to any act, whatever it is. And there's no doubt that God would be sorry that man had turned out the way that man did. He did not push man in that direction. Man chose to make those decisions. And uh, like any other, it's like you're having a child. You you put it, bring a child into this world, you do the best for the child, the child turns around and becomes a criminal or commits some kind of act that forever besmirches the name of the family. Now you're still your child, you still love your child, but there's always that regret, that element of regret. Why did I bring this child into the world? Uh, I think that's the kind of expression that is being used there. God is uh, expressing his complete disappointment that, with man. Uh, he did not intend man to go in that direction, but man chose to go in that direction. So he expresses the regret of a father uh, who is concerned and who is a, a creator about his creature. Um, so I just think it's an emotional expression that highlights 
how grieved God was and how sorry he was that man had chosen to go the path that he'd gone and that he would have to eventually destroy humankind with the flood. Uh, so that gives you an element of God's compassion uh, for man. And it's just an expression of his compassion, his concern, and his fact that he can be grieved. If God can be grieved by what I do, you, the only people that you grieve over are people you love. Uh, I, I, I can't grieve over somebody that I have no concern about. Mm. So that shows you God's concern for mankind, his love for mankind. That's how we would view that and how that I would interpret that. Not that he made man do that, and he knew what he was doing from the beginning, from the end. But that is just uh, expressing his great sorrow of how man has turned out to be. But it's an expression of his love and his concern for humankind and the path that man has chosen. Saying what God loves you, uh, my brother, uh, Mr. Codrington, he loves you. But um, again, he showed that love. The Bible said he manifests that love by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. That's how he shows our love. Greater love have no man than this, and the man laid on his life for his friends. Uh, he, uh, you know, and it talks about, and this was manifest the love of God towards us in that he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for our sins. So the, the, if you want proof that God loves you, that proof was shown on the cross of Calvary where Christ came and he died for you. It's just his love. Thank you very much for your call, Codrington. Thank you for listening and continue to encourage others to tune into That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. For this program, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there on your device, you can comment your question, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy live on the air in a timely manner. If you would like to call and ask your question live on the air, the phone line is now open and available. Call 268 462 7420. You'd rather WhatsApp or text your question? We've got you covered. You can send it to 268 782 1454. WhatsApp or text 268 782 1454. Doesn't matter what your topic is, we would love to hear your question. Excuse me, it doesn't matter what question you have, we would love to hear it. If you have a suggested topic that you would like us to discuss in a future episode of That's Truth, please feel free to share that. We want this program to be as practical as possible, and the best way to do that is to discuss things that are on your mind, on your heart, and that are being discussed around your dinner table or across the lunch table at your workplace. So we would greatly value any input that you have in relation to questions that may come in. Pastor, I have here in front of me a list of three reasons that a listener sent in why the Bible's food laws should be kept today. Number one, the Bible instructs us to keep them. Number two, the Messiah told us he didn't come to change the biblical law. And number three, the New Testament believers adhered to them. I can give them to you one at a time if you want to think them through or if you want to give a general answer. Let's come back to those because okay. I want to show him that the, the New Testament clearly brings a believer from under those dietary laws. So by, by, by responding to him um, in the program itself, we'll come back to those to show exactly how we answer those questions. Um, what I would like to do then, Nathan, is just to um, assert here very confident, very definitively, and very emphatically 
that the Old Testament dietary laws do not apply to the believer. He does not have to be under the Old Testament laws. And I want to show you that very clearly from the Bible. First of all, I want to refer you to Mark 7, verse 18 to 23. Mark seven eighteen to 23 says, And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man that defiled, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceedeth evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. What verse do you want me to read? 23. That was 23. Um, read the other verse after that in verse 23, 24. Verse 24 says, And thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into an house, and there was would have been no man known it, but he could not be hid. What are you reading? What verse are you reading? King James. And that's verse 18 to 23? 18 to 23 of, of Mark 7. Okay. There is a, a reference there in Mark 7. Um, I, I'm not too sure. Uh, let me just let me just turn to it here. Yeah. Well, pastors, turning there, let me just remind you that we don't want just you listening to that truth. We are thrilled that you're listening. Don't get me wrong, but we also want you to share this program with others. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's a loved one, a family member. Maybe it is a former friend or a friend who lives in another hemisphere of the world. You can encourage them to tune into That's Truth. If it is the middle of the night where they live and they're not awake and they don't want to listen online, they can listen to the rebroadcast on Saturday afternoon, which is Antigua time. 3 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, or you can listen to it any time that it fits your schedule. You can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second large photo that you see in the middle of your screen, and there's a microphone. Right when you see that picture in the middle of your screen, you see a circle that says podcast. Click on that. Scroll down to That's Truth Podcast Archive, and you can click on all previous 200-plus episodes that we have discussed. If you're wanting to listen to the episode that is airing tonight, give us a couple of days to get that uploaded, but it will be uploaded before the weekend, and then you can listen to it, share it with your friends, download it, and do what you would like to with it. Pastor, we have a question that's come in. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. After the Great Flood, Noah and his family were the only persons on the earth. How did races like Indians, Chinese, etc. come about? Well, uh, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's where you get the three major races. You get get the Caucasian, you get the Occidental, and you get the... um, the, the black, quite frankly, the what you call the white, yellow, and black, quite frankly, what people use. We know that the Jephthahites went 
up north to European. We know that the um, the other sons went to the east, and we know that the 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 Africans went to the south. That's how you got the three myths. So the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, is where you get the. Europeans came from Japheth, the Shemites came from Shem, that would be the Jews and the Arabs and those type of people, and then of course the Hamites is South and, and, and the African, etc. That's how you get three races. It's from the three sons of Noah. But I think God uh, built within Adam uh, when he passed on to his progeny, I think they had inherent within the genes of man the capacity that you would have racial distinctions as people move into different environmental areas, etc., etc. But that's how you get the three basic races. It comes through Noah's three sons. That's how you get the three basic races. Thank you for that question. That is a question that many people have or have had, and I appreciate you sending that in and asking it here on That's Truth. Maybe you have a question. Maybe it's a question that you have heard someone ask and you're not exactly sure how best to answer it. Send it via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454, or you can call and ask it live on the air, 268-462-7420. The reason why I ask you look at Mark chapter 7, 18 to 23, um, I'm quite surprised it's not there, but in the um, the New American Standard, in the NIV, in the um, probably New English Version, you're going to find that there is a statement that is given where the editorial comment of Mark is given. Okay. And it, it basically says in that particular passage that uh, in saying what he said, uh, he was making all foods clean. Now that's in the Sinaiticus, that's in the Vaticanus, that's also in the Alexandria, that's also in the Byzantine te- text, it's also in different unseals. I'm surprised it's not, not here, to be very honest with you. But there's a, remember that uh, Mark wrote his book about 60 AD. Okay. That is, uh, Christ died in 33. Yeah. So about 23 years after, he's now writing his book, and he is now in, has an editorial comment as a result of what he said there that it was not what a man ate that defiled a man, but what um, what comes out of a man's heart. Um, there's a comment in those in the in the Vaticanus, in the uh, the Sinaiticus, and the Alexandrian texts that uh, Mark writes by this. He was signifying that all all foods were clean. That's what he was trying mm-hmm. to get at. It's not really in the King James. I'm surprised it's not there. Um, but that's the text I was trying to get, right? So it, it's um, it's not there. But it's I, the end of verse 19, if you're interested in following along, the ESV says, "Thus he declared all foods." That's clean. what. I, that's what. I, that's yeah. it. I was looking at, but I was looking at the wrong verse. Yeah. Uh, which which part of that? Uh, the very end of verse 19. So let me read okay. 18 and 19 yeah, to give a conclusive that, thought. Uh-huh. Uh, and he said to them, "Then are all." Excuse me. Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but into his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Yeah, that's exactly that's a that's an editorial comment of Mark writing about twenty three years after. As a result of what what Christ was saying is this: Look, the Jews became so. Um, ritualistic that they missed the whole purpose of this whole thing so they assumed that is what a man took in that really defiled the man our Lord pushed back on that and said listen what a man eats comes out of his bowels and passes out as dung basically as as feces what really God is concerned about is not what a man 
puts into his mouth, but what comes out of a man's heart, see? And that's why Mark emphasizes here now that, uh, quite frankly, in doing so, he's indicating that all meats were now clean. Uh, that, that's the comment I want, want, want to point out there uh, from that particular passage. So the principle is that God's holiness in the Old Testament was expressed by restricting the Jews from eating. In the new dispensation, God's holiness is expressed by how a man lives his thoughts, what comes out of a man's heart. So you've got to be concerned not just about what you take into your body, but what is coming out of your heart. The whole thing has shifted from something that is physical and material and animalistic, like what you eat, to something that is now spiritual and emotional and something that is very, your thoughts, basically. Which so, one is harder to keep? Well, again, Eating is very easy to do. You just, but but what about your thoughts? What comes out of your heart? As, as he lists those kind of things that I mentioned there, man's heart is his problem. That's far more con uh, problematic to control uh, your thoughts and your desires and your, your sinful nature than it is to restrict yourself to just eating certain types of meat. So it's much harder in terms of what uh, what God wants of you now is far much harder than it was but then. You have people today, for example, that um, eat all, all vegetables, but their heart is, is as evil as ever. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter, you know, on one side they're very, very strict and very rigid, but they can't control their thoughts, they can't control their speech, they can't control their behavior, which is harder. And that's why now holiness is no longer linked to diet. What goes into a man is now linked to what comes out of a man because that's how you indicate your holiness, how you live, your thoughts, and your behavior. That's the whole emphasis that our Lord is. He's changing the whole complex of, the, of this matter. And he's, he's now putting the emphasis on human behavior, human thoughts, and human lifestyle as opposed to dietary laws. So for the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, I'm with you, but how do I change my heart? I am struggling with anger. I'm struggling with murderous thoughts. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with adultery. I'm struggling with theft. I'm struggling with lying. It could be any one of those. How do I change my heart? Well, if you read the book of um, Jeremiah, the New Covenant, which we're coming under in Christ, he said, and I will give you a new heart. See? I will take the stony, stubborn heart and give you a heart that is sensitive, a heart of flesh. So the, the, the real thing that is needed in people is that you need a complete transformation from the inside out. It's not an outward uh, reformation that's required. And that inward transformation can only come by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the believer. And the power of sin is broken because of the believer's identity with Christ in his death and his resurrection. book of Romans chapter 6 speaks about this whole matter, how that the power of sin has been broken in a person's life. It doesn't mean a person can't sin, but the power and the control of sin in a person's life is definitely broken through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you do it, Nathan. It cannot happen by... Uh, just going to church. It cannot happen by just being baptized or being confirmed. It happens only when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and uh, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and He begins to do that transforming work. He's called the Holy Spirit because He's trying to sanctify the believer, make the believer heard, holy. So no man can become a holy person by his own effort. 
in his divine effort. But the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in a person unless that person's heart is cleansed, which means that you have to have forgiveness, you have to have pardon. And remember that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says it's a great exchange. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So now because God sees us righteous in Christ, the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us and begin to do the work in us. So the answer to your question basically is, a person who wants to change must put their faith and trust. They must become saved. They must become a believer. They must become born again. And that comes by repentance and trust in Christ. What is repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin. I have said this several times, and it's worth repeating on the radio. There are people who, when people ask you what I need to be saved, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. But Christ said, except you repent, you're going to perish. So you have to repent, and repentance is turning away from sin, changing your whole mind, your whole attitude towards sin. Uh, If a person doesn't change the whole attitude towards sin and the whole mind towards sin, they don't have real redemption. Because why did Christ come to die? He came to die for our sins. To change us, to transform us, to break the bondage of sin in our lives. So what's the use of a man saying, I'm a believer, but the power of sin is still dominating his life? Mm -hmm. He hasn't had real conversion. Real conversion is when you turn to faith in Christ and there's a transforming power. If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creature. All things, notice the word, are passing away. Uh, there's a, a transformation that takes place, and that transformation is over time. But there is the breaking of the power of sin in a person's life. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse every Tuesday evening from 7.30 until 9 p.m. Antigua time. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. I know I said that fast, so I'm going to say it for you again a little slower. No one's on the phone line right now, so you can call and ask your question by calling 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268 782 one four five four. You can also join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then comment your question or your suggested topic or your concern right there on your device in the comment section as you listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, and then be sure also, no matter how you're joining us, to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth. It is 8.25 on this Tuesday evening. We still have 35 minutes left in tonight's episode. Plenty of time for you to go ahead and send in your question We are talking tonight specifically as we wait for your question about the dietary laws found in the Old Testament or in Scripture. And Pastor is just taking our attention to Mark chapter 7. Where else would you like us to go, Pastor? I want us to go next to um, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And look at verse 14 to 17. Colossians 2, 14 to 17 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. 
Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Yeah, the point that Paul is making in this passage is that when Christ died on the cross, uh, a new covenant was created. And all those Old Testament ceremonial laws and dietary laws that once applied uh, no longer relevant. That's why he can say, look, Christ nailed all these things to the cross, so therefore let no man judge you in meat or in drink. You have the liberty and the freedom to decide what meat you want, what drink you want, and holy days are Sabbath as well. Don't nobody judge you with holy days. That's why when people keep insisting that you must worship on a Sabbath day uh, or you must worship on, uh, you know, uh, Paul is saying, no, 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 you have freedom and liberty uh, to exercise uh, in uh, judgment in these matters. This is something that uh, Christ is taking care of on the cross. And uh, I want to point out that we're no longer under the old covenant, Nathan, the old covenant of law. And remember that there are over 613 laws in the Old Testament. Not just 10. Not just 10. ten. Those 10 are only the moral laws, but there are other 613 laws altogether. And remember, the law is one package. If you break one of the law, you break all of the law. So if a person wants to live under the law, you don't live under just the Ten Commandments, you live under 613 laws. And if you break one of those 613 laws, you've broken the law because they're part of the law itself. Uh, but if you look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse um, 13. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. And as I'm turning there, maybe this is not a topic that you think about regularly. Maybe it's not one that you struggle with. But I would encourage you to stay tuned so that you can better answer others from the Bible, what the Bible teaches on this topic. Hebrews 8.13 says, In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. I don't know how anybody can read a passage like that and not understand that we're no longer under the Testament law. Uh, he's saying that that which is vanishing away, that is, uh, is um, to use it, what's the term again that's used there? That which decayeth, decayeth and waxeth of old and ready to vanish ready away. To vanish away. So there's a new covenant. The old covenant is gone. We're no longer under the old covenant law. That is very, very, very clear. If you also look at Second Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, read verse 13, verse 11 and verse 13. 2 Corinthians three eleven and 13 says... 2 Corinthians, right? Yes, yeah, 2 Corinthians ahead. 3. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing that they, that ye have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Verse 13 and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the end of that which was abolished. So he's talking about, and if you want to know what he's talking about, if you look at uh, verse number 7, he's talking about the old covenant. And if you read verse number 7 in the same chapter. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. So quite clearly, we thought, which was written in stone? 
there's only one part of the Bible ever written in stone. That's the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So we were under the Old Testament economy. We're now under the New. Paul is going to argue in this whole chapter that we're now under the New Covenant. He's a, an advocate of the New Covenant. But, and then it, he talks about it's abolished, it's done away. So we're no longer under the Old Testament uh, economy of law. We're now under the New Testament economy of grace. It's called the New Covenant. As a matter of fact, um, Jeremiah 31 and verse 30, 31 to 34, he prophesied that this new covenant would come and what would be the significance of this new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Those verses read as follows. Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I also, although I was an husband unto them, said the Lord. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know, all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive them their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So clearly the new covenant that God was establishing with the Jews. When our Lord came, he came to establish that new covenant, but Israel rejected that covenant, and that's how the church was formed. But remember, there were Jews that were uh, part of the church, the first church, the church in Jerusalem. They were mainly Jewish people. Then when Paul became the convert, uh, you got the Gentiles coming to the church. But the church has now uh, inherited that covenant according to the book of Hebrews. Anyone read the book of Hebrews? So there's a new and Christ said on the when he was uh, having the Lord's Supper, this uh, blood, this cup is the blood of my uh, my covenant, my New Testament. Quite frankly, same testament. There's the word covenant. So when Christ died, just like the Old Testament, when it was a, the old covenant, there was blood that was sacrificed that uh, helped to initiate that covenant. Under the new covenant, Christ shedding his blood initiated this new covenant as well. The book of Hebrews explains this, explains this in great detail. So we're no longer under the old covenant of law. We're not under the, old, the new covenant of grace. And all the regulatory laws that were under the old covenant, we are no longer believers under those, those, new co those old covenants. That's why Paul can say to us in Colossians, these things were nailed to the cross. And by the way, when a person was crucified, the offense and what the... What penalty they pay for was actually nailed to the cross itself. And Paul is basically saying that when Christ died, uh, it's as though he nailed all of these things that were against us, and these things were already paid for. So we're no longer under the, these regulatory principles that you find in the book of uh, the Old Testament law. Another passage, Nathan, that confirms this is Romans chapter 14. Back to the New Testament, Romans chapter 14. Uh, let's go through some of these verses. Uh, look at verse, read verse 2 and 3. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Verse 3, 
Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Yeah, so first of all, uh, verse number two makes it quite clear that we don't want anybody to judge you in what you eat. This is a choice you have to make. And then Paul says in verse number three, we must not pass judgment on each other. Uh, for our individual dietary choices, if I choose to be a vegetarian, um, I can eat vegetarian. Uh, I can be a vegetarian. If I choose to be a, a, a carnivore and eat everything, I can do that. This is no longer relevant. Uh, Paul is saying, and we got to be very, very careful that we are not passing judgment on each other because I have the liberty to eat certain things and you think I should need it and uh, and vice versa. The whole thing here is understand Christian liberty. We're no longer under the <coughs> economy of law. We're under grace and God has lifted those restrictions in the Old Testament. It's not what goes into a man that matters anymore. <coughs> what really matters is what comes out of his heart, how he lives, how he thinks. This is the principle of holiness today and not the one when it comes to dietary laws. Uh, look at verse number 13, 15, and 21. Verse 13 says, Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. That was verse 13. 15. Read that 15 too. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. And then verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. So notice, number one, let's not judge each other. You're given liberty to choose <clears throat> what you want to eat. But then Paul points out that the believer who decides to exercise this dietary liberty, he has to be careful it doesn't become a stumbling block to a person who is weak in the faith. And that might be a person who legitimately feels that um, eating certain types of meat is wrong. Uh, you don't deliberately parade that in front of him uh, to in any way demean him or diminish him. Paul is saying you've got to be very careful it doesn't become a stumbling block to that person. So he's ex asking us to exercise responsibility. We've chosen to take the liberty of the dietary laws, but at the same time, we're not going to flaunt them before people who are offended by what we eat. This is what Paul is saying in that passage. And then look at verse number uh, 5. Of Romans 14? Yeah. Romans fourteen five. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Yeah, this goes back to the same principle that Paul is saying, that we must be personally convinced. Like he said uh, in verse number 2, don't let anybody judge you what you eat. He's now applying um, across the board. He's dealing. He's mixing uh, several things. He's talking about days. He's talking about meats. He's talking about um, special occasions. And Paul would tell us later on in the same chapter, all of these things were shadows of things to come. Uh, you don't apply to the shadow anymore. The substance has come. He'll, t he'll point that out later in this chapter, but he's just using illustration after illustration. So you must be convinced about what day, you must be convinced of what you eat, quite frankly. It's a personal matter where you have to be at ease in respect to these matters and let not people um, um, demand of you or command you to, to live or eat a certain type of thing. Look at verse number 10 and verse number 12. But why doest thou judge thy brother? 
Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Yeah, you saw the person now who has chosen to restrict his death. And Paul is saying, don't harass the brother. Let him stand before God. God is going to judge him. Your job is not to judge him because he's not eating what you want to eat, quite frankly. So harassing him is not going to help the situation, quite frankly. He stands before God and he will give an account before God. So let him have his liberty, let him have his freedom and stop the harassment, quite frankly. And then look at verse 14. And this is a very important verse. Romans fourteen fourteen, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. I mean, I don't think there could be a plainer scripture. In, they, they, they ought to take that verse and make it a scripture and we'll put it on the desk who think that a Christian should be under the Old Testament regulations. Paul says, again, read it for me, please, because I think people may not be aware that there's such a verse in the Bible. Romans fourteen fourteen. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Again, it goes back to conscience. If your conscience tells you something is wrong, don't do it. If my conscience gives me the liberty and the freedom because I think I'm free in Christ and I'm no longer under the Old Testament obligations, give me that freedom as well. Exactly what Paul is saying here, there's nothing unclean in itself. So there's nothing morally unclean about anything that was created by God. Quite frankly, what Paul is saying, it's only unclean to the person who thinks it is unclean in his mind. So therefore, again, Paul is calling for Christian liberty and individual choice in these matters. And then uh, notice uh, verse 7. What Paul is saying, this is what we should be concentrating on in 14.17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Yeah, this is what this is what we should be emphasizing, Paul is saying. You know, you, you talk about days, you talk about Sabbath and new moon, you're talking about eating this and eating that, and you're creating all kinds of problems in the church, and you got believer against believer and all this, you're judging each other. Paul said, let's concentrate on three things, okay? Let's live a righteous life. Let's not be so concerned about what goes into us, but what comes out of us in our life. Number two, let's live at peace. A brother doesn't see the thing the, the way you see it, but that's no cause to create disharmony in the church. Give him his liberty, give him his freedom, let him make a choice, and then, of course, let's have some joy as opposed to all this bickering going on in the church, etc., etc. So if we would just concentrate on righteousness, peace, and joy, Paul said that's what it's all about. Notice what he says next. For he that in... Verse, the, the same verse you just read there. Oh, verse 17. Uh-huh. But righteousness, the kingdom of God is not of meat and drink, but okay, of righteousness. Okay, that's the point. That's not, don't make the, these important things about meat and drink. This is what you guys are doing quite frankly. So you're making, you're making the kingdom of God about what you eat and what you... Paul said that's not what it's all about. What it's really about is about righteousness, peace, and joy. That's where your emphasis should be. 
The fact is, that's not where the emphasis is today. Uh, those people who are prone to go back to Old, Old Testament economy live under the law. The premier thing about them is not about righteousness, peace, and joy. It's about what you eat, what you eat, what you drink, what you eat. That's all you hear. You don't hear about righteousness, peace, and joy. They have missed the whole purpose of what the kingdom of God is about, and they've gone off on a sidetrack, as it were, a tangent. And Paul is saying, let's get back to what the kingdom of God is about. Let's talk about righteousness, peace, and joy. These things are secondary. They don't really count for nothing. No man is going to be lost because he ate a piece of pork or ate a piece of bacon. Uh, that's not what he's going to be lost. He'll be lost because he put the faith in Jesus Christ and how he lived, etc., etc. So uh, the core essence and substance of the kingdom of God is these three things. And these other things that people are making such a big um, issue about, Paul is saying these are minor things of no significance whatsoever and uh, Christians should have the liberty to, to do these things. Let me give you another verse. First uh, Timothy chapter 4. What verse? Uh, verse number 4. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Again, I don't know how anybody can read a verse like that and um, still want to impose all the dietary restrictions upon me as a believer. Uh, Could you read it again, please? Because I don't think people are aware that there's such a text in the Bible. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. So if I have a nice steak before me or a nice pork chop or I have a, a bacon before me and I'm giving thanks to God for what he's provided for me <laughs> there's nothing wrong in that um, that's my liberty that's my freedom so please don't take that away from me or take it away from other people uh, God has given us that freedom and that liberty so when you look at uh, Timothy you look at Colossians you look at Romans you look at Mark it is very, very clear that these uh, laws that people want to impose upon us, quite frankly, that those have been lifted. And we are given a choice to exercise our conscience, and we are given the liberty and the freedom to enjoy what God has provided. We are thankful for what God has given to us, and um, if it's received with thanksgiving, Paul says there's nothing wrong with it. Those New Testament references, to my mind, clearly uh, indicate to me that I'm no longer under these strict um, laws that you find in the Old Testament. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have 15 minutes left in this episode. If you have a question, go ahead and send it in quickly to 268-782-1454, or you can call and ask it live on the air, 268-462-7420. The other thing I would like to say, Nathan, about this, you know, this is a question that really did not become a major issue until the Gentiles started entering the church. Remember that uh, the first century Christians, the first set of Christians, the 5,000 that was founded and another 3,000 in Jerusalem, they were basically Jews or proselytes. Um, but it's only when the gospel was being carried to the Gentiles and it went to Cornelius, it is then that the church had a serious problem because you know, we can look back on these things, and we, we know that even today, the Jews today are very ritualistic. Even those who are saved, they still, a lot of them, still have 
the Jewish feasts, observe the Jewish feasts, etc. They think that these were perpetual covenants with themselves. They are, they've got faith and trust in Christ, no question about that. But they still like these rituals and stuff like that. They still observe these Hanukkah and all different types of Jewish, Jewish systems. The first century believers were quite like that. They came in out, out of Judaism into the Christian faith. And they still had these ideas that the Jew and the Gentile should be separated. You remember when Galatians, that Peter uh, didn't have any problem with um, a Gentile, worshiping with a Gentile, but when the people came from Jerusalem, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. And Paul says to his face, you're a big hypocrite. You're wrong about this thing. You're actually violating the gospel. It's found in the book of Galatians chapter 1 and 2. In the book of Acts chapter 15, you had the issue of when Paul had gone on his first missionary journey, Gentiles are getting into the kingdom. The question is this, do we impose the Mosaic law on the Gentiles? That was a big issue. Are, are we going to make sure that they insist that they be circumcised? Are we going to insist that they have to keep the dietary laws? What are we going to tell the Gentiles? And you remember in Acts chapter 15, they had a, a, a convention, a, a council. They brought all the people, all the saints to get along with the disciples, etc., etc., and the apostles, and they debated this whole matter. And they came to one conclusion, Acts chapter 15, verse 10 and 11. Acts fifteen ten and 11 says... Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Continue reading. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, yeah, continue reading, continue reading. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residual men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Know unto God are all his works from known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which are among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preached him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Again, notice the, the, the conclusion that we are not going to impose the law of Moses on these Gentiles. We're just going to lay down four basic restrictions upon them. No idolatry, no fornication, and as far as that is concerned, you can't eat anything that is strangled and you must not use blood 
that's the restriction that were placed on the genders in terms of what was permissible and not permissible when it comes to the whole matter of, of eating. Right? And again, you can see why these four things are, are easily mentioned. Uh, so those are, those are the only restrictions that we find in the New Testament relative to that for the Gentiles. Okay? Nothing that is strangled, nothing where the blood is uh, included in blood. That's why, um, for example, I don't eat black pudding. In, in, in um, uh, You could make pudding without putting blood in it, but people put uh, cow blood, they put um, pig blood in it. I don't know why people would do that, quite frankly. It's a very popular thing here in the Caribbean. When I was coming as a boy, it was one of the one of the things, put in sauce. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, my mom used to make it as well, but she never would use the blood. Uh, we never had blood in it, but you can you can go down to uh, some of these supermarkets and you can mm-hmm. buy thing and it has blood in it. Quite frankly, pig blood, cow blood, what is it? That's believers should not be engaged in that kind of a thing because this is a, a regulation. The blood is sacrosanct because it's given to, on the altar to make a sacrifice. That's why it was restricted uh, in, in the scriptures. But those are the only guidelines that are um, given to the, the Gentile believer in terms of what he should not eat. Uh, and that's why we have this great liberty. But again, notice that the church was forced to come to deal with this matter, uh, especially the Jewish church. Uh, only when the Gentiles began to come into the kingdom of God, the question would be, can the Gentiles eat pig? Can they, can, well, they can, well, let's not put this yoke upon them that not even we and our fathers could take quite frankly, but let's put these four restrictions upon them. So we have the liberty and the freedom to enjoy um, um, what we feel is legitimate, what we our conscience allows us to do when it comes to eating meat. We just have those two restrictions, uh, things strangled and uh, things that we would add blood to it. The Bible says uh, those things are beyond the believer, and the believer should restrict himself to those matters. We have a WhatsApp question that's just come in. Good night to all. Is it okay to advise a young woman to pursue a young man? Also, are there any preparatory advice for rejection that can be given to her? Is it okay also to advise her to ask God to send the guy her way instead of her actively taking any steps in showing her interest? By the way, these are Christian young people over the age of 20. Well, I'm... Not too sure how to answer that question because I don't know the full details. All I will tell you, there's nothing wrong in, in asking her to ask the Lord to lead the right man to her life, in her life. I don't think there's anything wrong as well of, of, of showing some kind of interest. For example, you go to Ruth and Boaz. I mean, clearly Ruth wanted to be redeemed. She wanted to, to, to have an inheritance. You remember that she went into the field, but then also, uh, which was allowed then, she at the night she laid on Boaz's feet. I mean, all of that was indicating that she had an interest in him, quite frankly. I don't see anything wrong in a woman demonstrating some kind of an interest. However, I don't think a woman should force herself on a guy. Uh, I don't think that is right and proper. But there's nothing wrong in asking her, look, let's you pray about this matter, and the Lord will lead the right one to you. But it's nothing wrong in... Um, in my judgment, showing some kind of an interest. I mean, you can smile at the guy um, if he smiles at you, quite frankly. If he, um, you, you have a conference, he's going to the conference, nothing wrong in going to the conference as well, nothing wrong with that. If you have a banquet, uh, nothing wrong in going to the banquet. I think those things are right and proper. Um, 
But it is always better for the male to pursue the female. Uh, but again, uh, sometimes, I must be very honest with you, in our churches, the pool is so small, uh, very little fish, and I can see a lot of our young people getting frustrated sometimes. They would like to find a, a partner for life, but there's nobody in the church at a suitable age. That's why I normally recommend that the churches uh, within the Baptist circle have banquets, have conferences together where you can get a lot more people coming together. And then there are some conferences in the Caribbean. There's one held in in, in January in a different island. There's one held. It's going to restart in October in, mm. in Puerto Rico. And we'll be sharing information uh, on the Lighthouse here about yeah, that. So right. Uh, those are conferences that if I personally was not married and I really didn't think the Lord had made me to be celibate and I was looking for someone if I couldn't find that person in the church where I'm worshiping or the churches I'm associated with, if they're having conferences where all the Baptists come together, 500 Baptists come together, uh, quite frankly, I would be there and uh, I would just be uh, making myself available and I'd be looking to see if there's a female that I would have some interest in. Uh, but I think that um, we trust God, nothing wrong in that, but we are also responsible for taking certain types of actions, and I don't think it is wrong to do that. What was the other part of the question? Is it okay to advise her to ask God to send? I'll just read the whole thing again. Yeah. Is it okay to advise a young woman to pursue a young man? Also, are there any preparatory advice for rejection that can be given to her? Well, uh, the, the thing about you showing so much interest and you're forward and it's very obvious that, um, you know, you have that kind of thing and then you get uh, rejected, you get hurt deeply. That's why you don't put all your eggs in one basket when it comes to the person. You must, you must feel out the situation, but it must not be so obvious that you're pushing yourself on the person. Let the person pursue you. If you try to be the right kind of person, the right kind of personality, the right kind of Christian person, uh, where you, you, you focus on your meek and quiet spirit and your spirituality and not try to win him just simply by your outward physical appearance, um, I think that is where he should have an interest, not just in your, your physique and your, your, your looks, but also the kind of Christian personality, the kind of Christian virtues that you demonstrate. So focus on those Christian virtues, etc., and... and um, I don't know what else to say to you about that in terms of the, the rejection aspect of it. Just be aware that once you um, pursue somebody and then it doesn't go your way, you aren't going to feel uh, rejected and you're going to f diminish your, your sense of self-worth. So you still have to act with caution and wisdom. Um, but also there's nothing wrong in, in, in showing some kind of initiative and interest. Um, I think that is useful. I think it, it, it's reciprocal. A man likes to pursue a woman, but at the same time he needs to have some kind of indication that there's at least some tentative interest. And I think there are ways that you, you can do that. You can smile, you can talk to the person, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but don't write love letters to the person. Let them write love letters to you. Um, and then you might have a good friend that knows the person. You might give them a, a, one or two hints that uh, might indicate that you know you might have an issue or something like that. But you 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 just use your agents that you have available uh, without at the same time 
making it feel as though you're so madly in love with the person that uh, you know you it's a you can't do without them. You don't want want that to happen. But there's nothing wrong in giving a few hints that you might be interested, etc. And then as you talk and you converse, you're assessing what the person is like. Um, again, if you're a believer, you want to make sure that they love the Lord, they're serving the Lord, they're involved in the Lord's work, uh, and they're an active part of the church. You just don't want to marry somebody or get engaged to somebody or date somebody because they say they're Christian. You want an active believer who is involved in the Lord's work, who loves the Lord, and who wants to be engaged in the Lord's ministry. In the last minute of the program, Pastor, uh, what are your thoughts in relation to these questions that came in? The Bible instructs us to keep the dietary laws. Well, number one, first of all, the Bible does not instruct us to keep the dietary laws. We've shown you very clearly from the New Testament that we have Christian liberty and Christian freedom. What's the next one? The Messiah told us he did not come to change biblical law. Yeah, the Messiah himself in the book of Mark, uh, quite clearly when Mark's uh, editorial comment, uh, he indicated that he is now making all foods clean. The New Testament believers adhered to them. In the, in the first century in the Jewish church, yes, but as Gentiles offered, came into the church, that had to change, and it was very clear to them that the Mosaic law and the regulations were no longer applicable to the New Testament believers. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can listen to it in its entirety. If you came in late, go to our website, Click on the podcast, click on the That's Truth podcast, and look for the episode entitled Dietary Laws. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.